0: Hello, my name is Keith Sieber. I am the pastor of New Beginning Baptist Church in Palm Coast, Florida, and we are on to our next message in our End Time series. The title of this message is Questions and More Questions, and we'll be starting in Matthew chapter 23, and we'll be going on to the beginning part of Matthew chapter 24 in this message. But before we dig into our message, I'd like to take a moment to talk about our church. We had a great weekend at our church. We had uh, we had our Sunday morning service, and we had a great service, a great spirit, a great song service. Uh, we had a message on uh, redemption, death, and the blood, and how it's all through the death and blood of Jesus Christ that we can be saved and and we can be redeemed and have our ransom paid, and then. Yesterday evening we had what we call our first Sunday sing, where we, we just get to sing a bunch of songs. Anybody who wants to sing can sing, and we just take turns singing and praising the Lord and and worshiping the Lord in song. And we always love our first Sunday sings. Um, so now let's dig into God's Word. Uh, started in Matthew chapter twenty-three and verse thirty-four, the Bible says, "Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets." And wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues, and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Then started in chapter 24 and verse 1. And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And so we have our message, our podcast message entitled Questions and More Questions. Uh, but first, let's review our golden rule of Bible prophecy. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, but take every word at its primary literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context Clearly indicate otherwise. Now, our plan, I'll review this again. Our plan on how we are proceeding through our study of the end times is as follows. We had some introductory material, we've we've covered that. And then we looked at the plot line of Bible prophecy, that was basically just an overview or a map of the big picture of our study. And then we looked at the setting. The setting was the setting and the signs of the end times, that was primarily a study in Zephaniah. And we are beginning the second part of the study of the setting here in Matthew chapter 24. So that's where we're at right now is the setting. And then after we move through the setting, we're going to look at the cast of characters. That's just getting to know the main individual actors of the end times. Then after that, we're going to move on to the scaffolding and structure. And that's mainly the timeline and nation actors of the end times. It's it's mainly a study in the book of Daniel, not all of Daniel, but uh, some of the chapters in Daniel. Then after that, we'll move on to the main narrative, and it's mainly a study in Revelation, but we'll also be looking back at Matthew again and some other books of the Old Testament as we move through the main narrative section of our study on the end times. Before we start digging into Matthew 24, uh, we need to go over a couple of definitions. When we see the term the day of the Lord, this is referring to the tribulation time period in most cases. Also, separate from this is the phrase the coming of the Son of Man, or other similar terms. This is not referring to the tribulation time period as a whole, but to Christ's actual coming back to the earth, which is in two parts. The coming of the Son of Man is partially fulfilled at the rapture, and the coming of the Son of Man is completed at his second coming at the end of the tribulation time period. The second coming of Christ will then be in two stages, the rapture and then the revelation. Uh, To start our study on the Olivet Discourse, we are beginning in chapter 23, and then we'll continue into the first part of chapter 24 in this podcast. So first, let's look at our setting. We are in the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry just a couple days before Passover on the Jewish calendar, and we know that it's even Tuesday afternoon of that week, and Jesus has just spent the last three days teaching in the temple. He has been speaking to large crowds and enduring constant harassment and inspection by the religious leaders. At the end of his final exchange with these leaders, Jesus delivered a scathing rebuke uh, in chapter 23. He pronounced seven woes on them, judging them for their hypocrisy and for leading Israel into her own judgment. They misled the people, robbing the people of their wealth, the Messiah, and ultimately the kingdom. So Jesus declared that these men would be excluded from the kingdom and face a fate in hell. Now going back six months earlier, at the end of chapter 12, Matthew recorded Jesus offering himself to the nation, as their king in a pivotal moment. Uh, Matthew twelve twenty two to 24 and Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. There were certain miracles the scribes and the Pharisees and the people in turn believed could only be performed by the Messiah, and in Matthew chapter 12, 22-24, Jesus performed one of these messianic miracles. They distinguished between what they deemed general miracles, which the ancient rabbis believed could be performed by anyone empowered by the Holy Spirit, and a second class of miracles, which they deemed messianic miracles which they believed could, could and would be performed only by the Messiah. Well, Jesus performed all of these messianic miracles in his ministry. The healing of a leper in Matthew chapter 8, the casting out the demon from the blind and mute man Matthew chapter 12, the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 9, and the raising from the dead a person after three days, as in the case of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And here in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus performed a messianic miracle before the crowd. They recognized its significance as a messianic miracle, even calling Jesus the Son of David. The crowd immediately recognized it as one of the messianic miracles. Still, the people refused to accept the miracles they witnessed, and instead believed they chose to believe the lies their religious leaders told them, and as a result, That generation of Israel forfeited the kingdom. Now let's look at proclamation of future judgment on Israel. After that moment, Jesus started preparing his disciples for the church program while he set his mind on Jerusalem and the cross. Now six months later, Jesus' death is barely 48 hours away and his public ministry has ended. And as it ends, Jesus makes one last public statement lamenting Israel's decision matthew twenty three thirty four to thirty six again Wherefore behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues, and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. These verses are essentially a footnote to the seventh woe. In the seventh woe, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for claiming to be more righteous than their forefathers. In prior centuries, the leaders of Israel routinely persecuted the prophets when they came declaring the truth. As John says in chapter 3 of his gospel, men loved the darkness and hated the light because it exposed their evil deeds. They were condemned for self-righteousness. So when the prophets came exposing the sins of the people of Israel, the nation's leaders responded by killing the prophets. And now with the benefit of hindsight and with hypocritical intent, the Pharisees said they would have never behaved that way. They, They would have behaved differently than their forefathers. They were more righteous than their forefathers, they said, and they would have obeyed the prophets. But Jesus said these men were worse than their forefathers because they not only did the same, but they did worse. The Pharisees persecuted prophets too, like John the Baptist. But even worse, they persecuted the Messiah himself. So Jesus condemned those men for their hypocrisy and their self righteous attitudes. Now, a future leaning footnote to add in Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 to 36. Jesus adds this footnote, saying he will confirm their hypocrisy and unrighteousness, and he will prove it by giving them more prophets, which they will in turn persecute. Just like those they said they were better than. The religious leaders of Israel will kill and scourge these men and drive them from city to city, and some will even die hanging on crosses. Who are these prophets that came after Jesus? Well, none other than the apostles, who are the prophets of the New Testament era. The book of Acts records the ministry of these New Testament prophets and the fierce resistance they faced from Israel's religious leaders, just as Jesus predicted. These men were usually killed, beginning with James in Acts chapter 12, and they were all all often mistreated. John, the beloved, is the only one we are told of, of the apostles that got to live to an old age and died a natural death. We see the apostles were scourged in Acts chapter 5, and church tradition maintains that Peter was eventually crucified like Jesus. These historical accounts confirm the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who said that they would acknowledge a prophet from God. There also was a shared guilt. Jesus says those men, the Pharisees, and those that helped them shared in the guilt of all those who have done the same before. They share the guilt of Cain, who killed Abel, with their forefathers, who killed the prophets after him, down to Zechariah. Zechariah was killed in a temple court where he took sanctuary from the Jews, seeking to kill him over his prophecies. He is the final Old Testament prophet to be martyred before the coming of the Messiah. So, Abel to Zechariah means all the prophets. And as an interesting coincidence, it also spans A to Z in the English language. Now, following the Lord comes with unavoidable risks. Following the Lord comes with unavoidable risks. The martyrdom of the saints, particularly the apostles, reminds us that following the Lord comes with risks, and these risks are largely unavoidable. As long as our world has evil people opposed to God who love darkness and hate the light, believers will be persecuted, taken advantage of, used, mistreated, and tossed aside. Why? Because we are the light of Christ in this world. We are the light of Christ in this dark world. Meaning we bring the same message of salvation that Jesus brought, and therefore we will experience the same reactions to that message that Jesus experienced when he preached. Some respond to the Lord's grace and humility and repentance, but many, and probably most, oppose the gospel and persecute his ambassadors. And the degree of our persecution will be proportional to the degree of our testimony and service to Jesus. The more fervently and persistently you witness the truth, the more the enemy and the world will persecute you. And if you are hesitant to make known your faith in Jesus, you will escape persecution. I, for one, would rather face persecution if it means I'm doing something right for the Lord. Now let's look at the coming judgment. In verse 26, Jesus makes a sharp transition into discussing the coming judgment for this generation of Israel, not just for their religious leaders. Matthew 23:36, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Jesus says here that all these things will come upon this generation, and these things. Are the outcomes mentioned in verses thirty-four to thirty-five? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall scourge. Ye shall scourge in your synagogues, and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. So entire generations of Israel will persecute the apostles by joining the religious leaders in scourging and killing them, and the guilt for these acts will fall upon this entire generation of Israel as a result. And this generation of Israel will receive a just and swift judgment for it. First, they will fail to receive their Messiah sent to her, and they will lose opportunity to enter into the kingdom. But more than that, Israel will also lose its place in the land because the Lord will send them into exile once again. And this time that exile will last not decades or centuries, but two millennia and counting. Jesus says that this is what is coming for this generation of Israel because they listened to the corrupt leaders and rejected Messiah. And Jesus closes chapter 23 of Matthew lamenting this sad and unnecessary future in verses 37 to 39. Next, let's notice how Jesus grieves over Jerusalem. God has forsaken the temple. Matthew 23, 37 to 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. A similar passage is given in Luke chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. Luke 21, 20 to 24 also throws great light on this passage. How these words picture the tender heart of our precious Jesus. Luke nineteen forty one to 44 tells us of other prophecies about the destruction of Jerusalem and how Jesus wept over the dear city. Luke nineteen forty one to 44 And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round and keep thee on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. We have a tender and compassionate Lord. Jesus' tender, compassionate heart longed to see every person in the city saved. So he prayed, Father, forgive them when they crucified him, Luke 23, 34. Verse 38, when it says, Behold, your house is left desolate, refers to the temple. The death of Christ did not put an end to Jewish sacrifices in the temple. They continued on for 40 more years, but God had left. Their house was left desolate. In the book of Hebrews, we see that the high priests were still appointed when the epistle was written, Hebrews 5, 1. Sons of Levi were still in the office of the Jewish priesthood, Hebrews 7, 5. The priest still stood daily in Jerusalem in the temple offering sacrifices, Hebrews 10.11, but the Shekinah glory had left the temple. The house was no longer owned of God as his house. It was already condemned to destruction with the impenitent of Jerusalem. Notice the significance of verse 39. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till. Upon his resurrection, Jesus would enter Jerusalem secretly only to appear to the twelve in the upper room with the door shut luke twenty four thirty six John twenty nineteen his public appearance to crowds of people was in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. Jesus ascended from Bethany on the Mount of Olives. More than five hundred brethren saw Jesus at once after his resurrection, 1 corinthians fifteen six but Jerusalem as a whole, did not see him and will not see him until his second coming to reign. Then they will see him zechariah fourteen three to four then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when He fought in the day of battle, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east and on the Mount of Olives, shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south then they will see the wounds in his hands, Zechariah 13:6, And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. That verse always gets me. It's such a sad statement. Then they will be convinced of his deity and their sins, and then they will mourn in deep penitence, Zechariah 12:10 10-14. Then the fountain of sin and uncleanness will be opened in Jerusalem, so shall all Israel be saved, Zechariah 13.1. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Romans 11.26-27 says, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Then the revival of Pentecost will be multiplied 1,000 times 1,000, and the prophecy of Joel concerning the pouring out of the Spirit on Israel in the last days will be completely fulfilled, as it was only partially fulfilled at Pentecost. Joel chapter 2, verses 28-32 And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy... Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem shall be deliverance. As the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now let's look at first moments of the Olivet Discourse. Let's look at the first moments of the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew chapter 24, we find the climax of the prophetic teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having ended his final teaching in the temple, he left the center of religious activity, never to return. His ministry in the temple was finished with the pronouncement he made at the end of chapter twenty three. Now with his disciples in tow, he turned his steps toward the Mount of Olives. We must not forget that the gospel of Matthew is the kingdom book, and is directed primarily to the Jews in the same manner in the same way as the book of Hebrews is directed primarily to the Hebrews or to the Jews, but it is also for us too. Now, the coming of Jesus, we need to note, will be in two stages. We mentioned this earlier, but it bears repeating. It will be in one, the rapture, and then in the second stage, revelation. Uh, first, the rapture. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will, bring, will God bring with him. 1 Thessalonians four thirteen 13-18. So, the coming of Jesus is in two stages. First, the rapture, and then second, the revelation. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. Zechariah 14 3 9 in part. Now here in Matthew 24. Jesus is not finished preparing his disciples for their mission. Two of the most important teaching moments in all of Jesus' earthly ministry take place during the next 36 hours of his life here on this earth. This is a very pivotal time in his life in ministry. Jesus delivers an extended teaching on how the present age ends leading to his return so let's move on into the first moments of the Olivet Discourse, including the moments prior to it that led to this pivotal discourse. Matthew 24, 1-2. Matthew 24, 1-2. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus has just finished his third day in the temple, and as the day ends, Jesus follows his usual practice of leaving the city to sleep in nearby hills of Bethany. The road home from the temple took Jesus out of the east gate and down the Kindred Valley and up the other side to the top of the Mount of Olives. From there is a short walk to Bethany where Jesus has been spending the nights. We can surmise he probably spent the nights at Lazarus and Martha's home. It is Tuesday afternoon and it has been a long and stressful day for Jesus and the disciples. So as they walk out of the temple, some of the disciples begin to admire the amazing construction of Herod's temple. Herod's temple is one of the most impressive construction projects ever undertaken in all of history. The massive foundation stones Herod set are so large that today engineers and archaeologists still struggle to imagine how they were worked and placed so precisely. The building was the longest building project Herod ever undertook, and it was not completed in his lifetime. In fact, it was not even completed in Jesus' lifetime. The temple was not completed until nearly 40 years after Jesus died, shortly before it was destroyed by the Romans, in the Great Revolt of A.D. 70. The disciples are truly fascinated at the temple, and they point out the progress to Jesus, who responds abruptly to their statement. Jesus offers no compliments, but instead he promises, that is, that this massive structure would be torn down stone by stone. Jesus' prediction was outstanding and unbelievable at the time. It was like hearing a person telling us that one day the entire World Trade Center towers Will be torn down brick by brick, beam by beam, in only a matter of minutes. If someone would have said that to us in 1999, we would have thought they were crazy. And yet these men believed Jesus because they knew he was the Messiah and they trusted his word. They believed his word, even when his word was unbelievable, they still believed. Let me repeat that. They believed his word. Even when his word was unbelievable, they still believed. Do we have that kind of faith in the word of God? So when they heard that the temple would be taken down in a day that was to come, they began to wonder, how could that happen? It seemed so impossible to them. And naturally, they assumed an event of that magnitude meant the world was ending or something equally momentous was happening. They could not fathom any other scenario other than the end of the world that could do that kind of damage to the temple. But as they are dwelling on this statement made by Jesus, the disciples do not say anything in response to Jesus, not at first, but later as they reach a stopping point, they come to him. And here we begin our next section, questions and more questions, Matthew 24 and verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Matthew says the disciples came to Jesus privately and asked him a series of questions. And these questions serve as our outline for most of the next two chapters in our study. In verse 3, Matthew records three questions. Number one, when will the temple destruction happen? Number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And number three, what will be signs of the end of the age? But we know the disciples actually asked four questions in total, because in Luke's account of this conversation, we find the additional question. Luke 21 and verse 7, And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? They asked for a sign for when the destruction of the temple would come to pass. So, putting both passages together, we have the following four questions that Jesus was asked. And now might be a good time to start taking some notes to keep all this clear. Putting all these questions together in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. Luke 21 and verse 7, we come up with the following four questions that Jesus was asked. Number one, when will the temple destruction happen? 1A, what are the signs of the temple's coming destruction? We get that question from Luke's gospel. Number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And number three, what will be the signs of the end of the age? Let me repeat those again. Putting Luke 21 and verse 7 together with Matthew 24 and verse 3, we come up with four questions that were asked. Number one, when will the temple destruction happen? 1a, what are the signs of the temple's coming destruction? We get that from Luke's gospel. Number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And number three, what will be the signs of the end of the age? Now, Jesus also answers. A couple of questions that were not asked. What are not the signs of his coming? In verses 5 to 6, notice verses 5 to 6 says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not. So these are not signs of the end. Uh, What are the duties of a faithful servant? Another bonus question that was asked. And in verses 45 to 51, we get that answer. So putting all these questions in order in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, you have five in total with a sub-question added to question number one. So let's go over that again. You start off with bonus question A, that, that question that was not asked but was answered anyway, bonus question A, What are not the signs of Jesus coming? Matthew twenty four five to six, and then we move on to question number one. When will the temple destruction happen? Luke twenty one twenty to twenty four, and then question one a. What are the signs of the temple's coming destruction? Luke twenty one twelve to nineteen. Then question number two. What will be the sign of your coming? Matthew twenty four nine to forty four. And question number three, what will be the signs of the end of the age, Matthew 24, 7 to 8? Virtually everything Jesus says from this point forward in chapters 24 and 25 will be in response to these questions. We will spend several weeks studying this discourse. We will spend several weeks studying these questions in chapters 24 and 25. And these questions will serve as our outline for that study. Before we start, there is something else we need to consider. There is a quirk to the Olivet Discourse that we need to understand. Jesus will not answer these questions in the same order they are asked. Instead, Jesus gives his answers in an order which better suited his purpose in revealing these things. Uh, The order Jesus answers them And will be bonus question A, what are not the signs of Jesus' coming? Uh, Question number three, what will be the signs of the end of the age? Question number one, when will the temple destruction happen? Question number one A, what are the signs of the temple's destruction? Question number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And then bonus question answer B, what are the duties of a faithful servant as he anticipates Jesus' return? He answers his first bonus question first, followed by question 3, question 1, question 1a, question 2, and then a second bonus question is answered last. How do we know that Jesus rearranges his answers? By the nature of what Jesus says, we'll be able to tell which question he is answering. So let me read those questions again. Bonus question A, what are not the signs of Jesus coming? Question number one, when will the temple destruction happen? Question 1A, what are the signs of the temple's coming destruction? Question number two, what will be the sign of your coming? Question number three, what will be the signs of the end of the age? And bonus question B, what are the the duties of a faithful servant as he anticipates Jesus' return? Now there are some strongly differing opinions in chapters 24 and 25. If you have studied chapter 24 and 25, then you know there are some strongly differing opinions in the church how to interpret Jesus' answers in these chapters. And much of that disagreement centers on when these events happen in history and in their relation to one another. One of the reasons for disagreement in our interpretation of this passage is found in the explanation I just pointed out. Our interpretation can be changed if we miss important details in the text, like the changing of the order of the questions, and also by not cross-referencing Luke 21 and other passages. So let's wrap things up for this message for this podcast. Our study of this chapter should not merely be a pursuit of knowledge of the end times for the sake of that knowledge. Like our study of all scripture, we are seeking to understand what God has revealed so he then may share that truth with others. And as we share the truth, we help unite the body of Christ. Unfortunately, there are some in the church who advocate for a continuation of ignorance within the church in this area of the Bible. A well known megachurch pastor from California once wrote the following in one of his best selling books. He wrote, Today there is a growing interest in the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. When will it happen? Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples asked him the same question, and his response was quite revealing. He said, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the ends of the earth. When the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, this is his quote continuing now, when the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, Jesus quickly switched the conversation to evangelism. He wanted them to concentrate on their mission in the world. He said, In essence, the details of my return are none of your business. What is your business is the mission I've given you. Focus on that. Speculating on the exact timing of Christ's return is futile. Because Jesus said no one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Since Jesus said he didn't know the day or hour, why should you try to figure it out? What we do know for sure is this. Jesus will not return until everyone God wants to hear the good news has heard it. Jesus said the good news about God's kingdom will be preached in all the world, that nation. then the end will come. If you want Jesus to come back sooner, focus on fulfilling your mission, not figuring out prophecy, end quote. That's where his quote ended. This quote perfectly illustrates the attitude which perpetuates both ignorance and division within the body. First, the author clearly does not understand Scripture himself because he misinterprets the passage he quotes altogether. He introduces his comments by saying there is growing interest in Christ's second coming, as if to say that's a bad thing. But the Bible itself tells us that we should have an interest in the future events for the church. So that is a good thing. It's actually obeying God's word to have an interest in the second coming. Secondly, this pastor labels the study of end times scripture as, quote, speculating on the exact timing of Christ's return, end quote. Endeavoring to understand the Bible's teaching on the end times is not the same thing as speculating about Christ's return. Most importantly, this pastor never explains why the Bible provides us with so much teaching on eschatology. If we are not supposed to be interested in the matters of the end, why did the Lord give us so much to study about it? In fact, by some estimates, 40% of the Bible is prophecy. There is a passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul explains some of the intricate details of events that end this age. We'll study that passage later during the course of looking into Matthew 24, but for now, I want to draw your attention to how Paul begins that passage and how he ends it. First thessalonians four: thirteen but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Uh, this pastor I quoted seems to be wanting to remain ignorant and encouraging people to remain ignorant about the things of eschatology, about the things of the end times, about the things of prophecy. Paul begins this section in First Thessalonians by saying he did not want believers to be ignorant. He did not want them to remain ignorant of the events of the end times, so they would not lose hope. Paul ends the passage with a second statement about hope. 1 Thessalians 4.18 Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul had just finished explaining the circumstances surrounding the Lord's appearing and the resurrection of the church. And then he says the church is to take these teachings pass them around, share them with one another, and we are to comfort each other with these teachings. We are told in Scripture to take the teachings of the end times, spread them around, and comfort one another with these teachings of the end times. Scripture itself says we are supposed to take this teaching of the end times and use it to decrease concerns in the church. Paul knew that the better we understood the future, the more we would look forward to the future. The more we look forward to the future, the more we will prepare our hearts to please Jesus so we'll be ready to meet him. I pray that as we study the end times, we'll find our hope in the future growing and our concerns over what troubles us now fading. Jesus is so much greater than our troubles and concerns that we have today. The future that God has planned for his children is so incredible. It's so beautiful. It's so awesome. It's so wonderful. It's so hope-inspiring that we should study it more and more and more. And I cannot think of a better time in recent memory when the church needed this kind of preaching needed this kind of teaching any more than it does now. We have something unimaginable to our finite human brains waiting for us in the future, all because of Christ, all because of his love. We have joy unspeakable and full of glory just waiting for us across the shores of jordan in the heavenly promised land now that ends our our podcast message for today next week we'll be continuing on in a book in a chapter 24 of the book of matthew we will be in matthew 24 and 25 for the next several weeks and the title of next week's podcast is human bewilderment and divine warnings and we'll start digging into Matthew 24 a little bit more. We'll go over the questions again and the order of the questions. We'll probably go over that for several weeks because that's quite a lot of information and things we need to keep straight. But thank you again for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for listening. And please remember to keep us in your prayers and keep New Beginning Baptist Church of Palm Coast, Florida in your prayers. And if you are in the Palm Coast area, I would like to invite you to come join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. as we, we make much of Jesus, we study the Bible verse by verse, and we seek to please the Lord in everything we do.